Well, thanks, Chad, for those words, whether they were kind or not. Actually, I'd, I'd planned to introduce myself just in case um, you didn't. And uh, one of the things I was going to say, and I know the reason why you brought me here, was to help the summer attendants with my family, which we're very glad to do. And I'm glad to be amongst so many friends, people who I've known and worshipped with, and to meet some new people, too. Um, but I'm here to encourage you in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as we continue this series of the seven churches of Revelation. And, but they are the seven churches that were then, and I think you've probably been told they are the seven churches that are today. Um, each one of these churches um, we can see. Um, it's very easy to look and find the faults in other churches. It's harder to turn in, see the faults of our own church and of our own selves. But that is what... Um, we want to do as we um, continue through Revelation. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We'll read verses 18 to 29. This is the longest and the central. It's the middle, and it's also central uh, thematically, I believe, um, given to Thyatira, placed specifically in this position. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Idolatry. Now, it was a problem in Thyatira. It was a problem for Israel throughout their entire life. And after leaving Egypt and immediately before entering into the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God warns Israel. He says not to turn to other gods, but to fear him alone. Why did the Israelites have to drive out and kill the other people who inhabited that land? It's because they worshipped other gods, and God didn't want a trace of it. But you know the story, Israel over a period of time kind of got tired of getting rid of them all, and every time they compromised, what happened? They were led into idolatry. They 
they invited those gods to become part and put them up on high places. But what about idolatry today? Well, my family loves to watch Extreme Maker Homeowner Edition, right? Okay. You know, it's always Sunday, Sunday night, and it's like, can we watch Extreme Maker Home Edition? Now, I don't know if they really like the show or if it's the fact that it usually comes on at 8, and that's usually their bedtime, and so they get to stay up till 9, and we usually have, like, popcorn or something else, too. Well, well we like to watch it. Well, over this past year, uh, we were watching one of these, and, you know, Ty Pennington, you know, he's such a charismatic guy, and he's, you know, just... And he's got that wild hair. I don't know what's with that. It saves him time in the morning. doesn't have to comb it. But he and these designers are on the bus, and they're telling you all about how tragic. I mean, I, I think they kind of dramatize it a little bit. But just bad things have happened to these families, and their homes are in disarray, and they need help. ABC comes to the rescue. Well, we're watching this one, and Ty usually does the special room for somebody, like either the cancer patient, and they do it really nice, or the parents who have some difficulties with children like special needs or something and they need a retreat so it's usually someone's bedroom a master bedroom and this retreat or oasis well in this particular one i believe it was ty's special room was this very special room it was a prayer room it's not the kind of prayer room a closet like in the new testament this family had had immigrated from india and this prayer room is a shrine and there's a special place and it's very all done up and, and fancy. And they have little graven images, the little carven things and cast things. And they have incense that burns to these gods and they, they put little flowers and things around there and they pray to them. But we don't have that problem. We don't have little tiny gods, do we, that we have in little shrines in our homes? Probably not. Most of Western uh, civilization and Western culture has, has abandoned that. But we have, we've invented new idols. They're just not little tiny carven things, although I guess maybe sometimes they are if they come in the way of jewelry um, or other, other uh, physical things. But this, seeing this in the home, it sparked a discussion in our home as to well, what, what are idols for us? We don't worship like that, but what do we worship? And I think that's a question we have to ask ourselves today and we have to answer for ourselves. How do I commit idolatry? How, is it present in my church? Are we letting some teaching go on that shouldn't be? But for us, it's, we have to define idolatry so we can really get an understanding so that we can evaluate what's happening in our lives. So let me give this to you. Idolatry is valuing something or someone in a way that hinders the love and the trust and the service that we owe to God. It may be a person that we value more than we value God, that relationship. We, we value their praise, what they think about us. It may be our education. It may be that people will think real highly of us because we know a lot and we have these degrees or we got a certain profession and we went to certain schools that hang on our wall and we take pride and satisfaction in that or what other people think of us because we have this, the corner office or we have this or we have that. It could be recreation. We'd rather have free time to go and, you know, off to the hills and go off-roading 
than take time to attend church regularly or to read our Bibles or to um, be in fellowship with other Christians. I think many times, whether it's prestige or power, what we really need to do is simply get a mirror and we will see the image that we worship because it's us. It's pleasing ourselves. It's pleasing ourselves more than we want to please God. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did? They saw the fruit and at some point they decided that will please me ultimately more than God. That's idolatry. Anything can be. In the New Testament, in both Colossians and Ephesians, Paul says covetousness and then does this kind of parenthetical statement, which is idolatry. Anything that we desire that captures our heart has replaced the place where God needs to be. And we have inserted something else there. He should have our first devotion, our first attention. I think we could talk about maybe a different command, not to eat of the fruit. A different command might be go therefore and witness. Jesus gives us the command. It's a universal command. And what do I hear all the time? Uh, I, I, well, I, I, don't, I don't share my faith. Well, why not? When was the last time? Or, or, well, I don't know what to say. So are we afraid because people might laugh at us because we're not really glib? Or is it the fact that we haven't taken the time to, to learn about the gospel well enough that we could tell it to somebody else? We'd rather serve ourselves with our time than to serve him, to obey and, and carry out the command that he's given us. What Thyatira needed to hear was, do I fear Christ and love Christ enough to forsake whatever I value more than Christ himself? Do I fear and love Christ enough to forsake whatever I value more than Christ himself? What am I willing to sacrifice to do that? What do I have to give up? What am I being called to do? Well, we're going to examine seven pieces in this letter. The seven C's will begin with the church. Revelation 2.18 says, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, this is the longest letter to the least significant city. And were it not for the Roman peace, the Pax Romana, this city would have continued to have been captured and destroyed and rebuilt over the centuries. But because of the Roman influence, the city which lacked any sort of natural defense, and it was really just a way to keep invaders uh, 40 miles away from Pergamum a little more. Um, uh, you know, the, uh, the, a great city, a prized city, a free city. Um, they're, just, they're just this little city, and it wouldn't have done anything had it not for this, been for this Roman peace. But because of Rome, it did flourish. In fact, it flourished so much that, that there are all kind of trade guilds that are part of the city. This is where you would learn any sort of trade. They found wool, linen, special dyes, potters, metal workers. They all have their own trade guilds. They have their own unions. This is a union town. If you want a job, you're going to have to go to one of these unions, the local 1024, okay? The, the local electrical union. Um, there wasn't opportunity for people outside of these trade guilds. 
In fact, what's interesting here is the imagery that has been used. Even the bronze that's talked about is probably a special type of bronze. That that word they understand to be bronze, but it probably refers to a special process done only in Thyatira. And in fact, they're so well known for this. This is why they're, they're, they're famous. Even in Acts 16, we know that a woman named Lydia, who'd become a believer under... Um, the Apostle Paul, she was the purveyor of purple clothing from Thyatira, taking not only the linen and the wool, but also the special dyes that they had from the special root and dyeing these clothes purple. So here's a wealthy town, a well-to-do town. I would say much like Western culture, much like the United States, a very wealthy place. They weren't the seat of the emperor worship but each of these guilds had its own god and each of these gods were served by certain feasts that you were expected it was your union dues if you will the dues had to be paid you had to go to the feast and all that that um, entailed secondly let's look at the characteristics of christ back to verse 18 and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Christ paints this picture of himself in this letter to Thyatira. A very purposeful picture. He picks images that are going to elicit fear in the minds of the hearers. This is by no mistake just like the bronze that's mentioned in the passage and the iron and the pottery, those are all part of the trade guilds. There's no accident with these um, images. They're very particular. The description of Christ begins by hearkening back to Revelation chapter 1, as you probably talked about in the other letters. But a very significant word change occurs here. It begins with, in chapter 1 with the Son of Man. Here, Christ changes the word to the Son of God. And we know that John is the writer in his other works, both in, in the Gospel of John and in, the, in his letters, uses Son of God in a very particular way to reinforce the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, I am God. I want, I want to change my phrasing here because I want to, first of all, say, I am God. Well, if that isn't enough to strike a little fear into you, just to say, he is God. I've got something to say to you. Listen to what I'm going to say. But then he, he, he secondly, he's purposely using the term son of God because all of this letter is referencing Psalm 2, which Clint read for us earlier. He wants them to have this psalm on their minds. He wants the imagery of this psalm to be in the forefront of their thinking as they're reading what he has to say. And I'd like to take a moment, turn in your Bibles back to Psalm 2. And I I know that Clinton read it, but I think it would do us um, good to read it again, to hear these words, to get these pictures in our minds. Because this is exactly what Christ wanted in our in the minds of the people in Thyatira and us today to have, have this picture. This psalm breaks up into four sections. We have what the nations are doing. We have God's response to it. Um, We have Christ being um, uh, touted as the one who will rule and reign. And then we have the opportunity for them to repent. Um, 
in these four sections, beginning in verse 1, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and why the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Have you ever had anyone laugh at you? What would it be like to have God laugh at you? He who sits in the heavens laughs. How silly that they would do this. How foolish. God laughs at this. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. It's a form of humbling yourself. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the son whom God has given the authority over the nations to judge and to crush the rebellious. The vision of God here as the son of God, he, he adds this, the, the eyes that flame like fire. And the feet like burnished bronze. And this is a quote nearly identically from Daniel chapter 6. Where there is this description. His body was like a barrel. His face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. His eyes. These eyes that see everything are aflame. Why are they aflame? Because fire is purifying. He sees every deed and he sees every wicked deed. And he will punish it. He will purify it. He will purify the church. Secondly, which is just going to heap more on this idea of judgment and fear, is he has these feet of bronze. Once again, picking up on one of the trade guilds, he uses this burnished bronze to say, I'm talking to you. But the feet are, are clearly a sign of authority and rule. And as we look at Psalm 2, there's absolutely no way you can say it's anything but judgment over the nations. He's going to crush them. He's going to step on them and crush them, those who are in rebellion. This is the one... Wonderful words that Christ is giving to the church in Thyatira. He wants Thyatira and us to know that he sees all our deeds and is ready to judge them if we don't repent. Are you in awe of Christ's power so that you would turn from your sin? Why does Christ want to strike fear into their hearts? Why does he want to elicit fear from us as we would read this passage? Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
Christ wants us to be wise, and fearing the Lord is where this begins. Proverbs 1, seven: the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Christ is wanting to instruct the church. He's wanting to instruct us, and if we follow his instructions, we will be wise. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. We must hate evil in our lives, and we must hate evil in the church, and we must not put up with false teaching. We must not tolerate it, not in our lives and not within the church, his bride, his love. Jesus, in Matthew 10.28, encourages his disciples as he sends them out with these words, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He speaks about our tendency to fear man, to be afraid of what men may think, to be afraid of what they may do to us, and not about the ultimate end, which is what God can do to us. You know, I believe that there's a good fear. You know, there's a, there's a fear that paralyzes us. You know, a fear and then you don't know what to do. Deer caught in the headlights. So what happens? They get run over because they don't know whether to go left or right. But there's another kind of fear, a good kind of fear. And I think about my grandparents who raised me. Um, I had a fear of my grandparents. I had a fear of, of the belt, the little thin black belt that um, came out. And when I was applied to my bare backside, um, when I disobeyed, um, but I remember um, a couple of times in one instance, uh, we had alleys. You guys know what an alley is? You know, <laughs> well, I say that only because all the, the neighborhood I live in now and the one I'm moving to shortly, they, they don't have alleys. But we had alleys and, and um, we'd play because they had all these kind of nooks and crannies and, and whatnot. Well, then I didn't tell my grandmother where I had gone. And later in the afternoon, I hear this, this voice calling, not real loud because I'm a little ways away but i hear joel ray now my grandmother always used my middle name so it didn't didn't necessarily mean i was in trouble but the problem was by the time i would get there meant that i had gone further than i should have gone and i hadn't told her where i was going which is what was going to come she's going to come looking for me because i wouldn't get there in time because i heard that faint i was too far away and i had that fear i had the fear of the belt but I also, which was a good fear. But I also had the, the fear of their disapproval. I mean, even as, and as an adult, I used to, you know, still want my grandmother's approval, which, by the way, was really hard to get. Um, but there's, there is a good fear. And I think this is the fear that he wants to, uh, to elicit. Not the fear that paralyzes us and we go, woe is me. It's the fear that calls us to action, to what we're supposed to do. Thirdly, the C would be commendation. Despite this fearful picture of Christ, he actually begins with praise. I'm so surprised after seeing all this imagery about fear that he has good things to say. Verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your later works exceed the first. Wow, unlike Ephesus with its loveless orthodoxy, here we have a church who's praised for its love. In fact, the first church in in, in the series to be praised for its love, but also for service and faith and endurance. Their love expressed itself in service of one another and their faith resulted in their endurance. And when you see faith and endurance used together in Revelation, it almost always indicates a faithful witness to the community. 
maybe like the community that is trying to have a faithful witness in India, but is undergoing a lot of persecution. Not only have they been uh, commended for doing four things well, they've also been told that their later works are greater than their first. This is another contrast to the church in Ephesus who had been started out so strong and now was waning and had lost its love entirely. Here we have a church that's growing in its love, growing in its works, and and they're praised for that. This is really high praise. I wonder how many churches in Bakersfield, River Lakes, Sovereign Grace, and, and the many other, I wonder how many of us would get this sort of commendation. Regardless of what criticism to come, if we were like this, what would this city really be like? How might God really be using us? Would we in every church in Bakersfield put those things into practice? Would I as an individual believer put that into practice? Wouldn't those be great words to hear from Christ himself? But with such high commendations, what, what, what could they really be doing that's so wrong? The condemnation, and it's a scathing one. We'll read verses 20 through 23. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. Thyatira is guilty. They're guilty of allowing a self-proclaimed prophetess to teach. They're also guilty of allowing her then to deceive and to lead Christ's own. That The, the words there where, where it says bondservant or slave or servant in your, in your text. That's his church. Those are believers. And they have been led into idolatry and to sexual immorality. This is seriously serious and suddenly we know why this fearful picture of judgment has been painted for them. Christ is not going to tolerate this. He's not going to tolerate it in Thyatira, and he will not tolerate it today. Jezebel, that's a very important name here. It's not the name of the woman in the church. It's the name that Jesus gives this woman because of what she has done. They're going to these guild feasts, and there is meat sacrificed to idols publicly there, and they're consuming it. And Jesus is saying, just like Jezebel led Israel under King Ahab, he'd married Jezebel, a foreign wife, and she brought her gods with her into the palace. She brought her gods into society, and they put them up on the high places, and they worshipped them. Israel was a bride, the bride of our Lord, and they were worshipping a false god, and that is the fornication that is happening, and that was the idolatry. And God is righteously jealous of his own. We are his. And he is jealous when we pursue another. 
somehow this New Testament Jezebel was encouraging the participation of Christians in the guild feasts. And that's indicated by what we see with the meat sacrifice to idols and the sexual immorality that's pointed at. This was just beginning in Pergamum. And it was affecting some, but now it was basically the same sort of thing was happening in Thyatira, but it was in full swing. Probably because of the prosperity of the city and the numerousness of the trade guilds, it meant that nearly everyone would have had to belong to a guild to have a job. The homage that's paid to the guild deity and the required attendance at these feasts has caused the believers to fall into idolatry by participating and eating the meat that was sacrificed to the idols. After the food and drink were consumed, sexual immorality would, would follow on these couches that they had just had these feasts at. And this is what the Christians were falling into. But what was she teaching? What, how did they fall into this? Well, it was something similar to what the Nicolaitan heresy was, some kind of Gnostic or maybe pre-Gnostic argument that was out there saying that these gods, these deities of the guilds, well, they're really nothing. There's only one true God, right? We're monotheists. We believe in one God and all these other gods are nothing. And so what does it matter? Besides, you have to eat, you need to feed your children, you need a place to live. It's a union town with union jobs and a union store and union housing. So you got to pay the union dues in order to survive. And if, they're, if the gods don't mean anything, then why not? What's it going to hurt? This may explain why they attended the feasts. The sexual immorality, well, one part of, what part of the party do you leave unnoticed? I mean, someone's going to notice, hey, he left before the good stuff started happening. You know, he only ate the meat. But we already know that, that, that eating the meat sacrificed to idols in this public way was already condemned in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Another clue to this teaching we see in, the, in that phrase, the deep things of Satan. There is another Gnostic type of teaching that encouraged believers to actually engage in this sort of activity to prove that the gods were powerless. Look, if you can go and you can indulge in those sorts of things, they're powerless. They're not going to have power over you. And if you go and do that, you'll prove that they're powerless. Well, what it, isn't that pretty seductive, especially when you think if I, I'm going to lose my job, I'm going to lose my house, and how am I going to feed my children? And, you know, I have a lot of children, okay? In December, we'll have nine. Um, I think about... I mean, it may sound weird, you know, you're working in a church or whatever, but I, I think, well, what if I didn't have my job? How would we eat? You know, what, what would I do? What would I do for income? Um, that, I don't know why, but my mind goes there sometimes. I think it was a real issue for these Christians, and this teaching was compromising them. And then they were compromising themselves, and they were falling into this idolatry. How does the church tolerate teaching that leads us into sin? You know, it's real easy maybe to point at the liberal church, a church that has really lost the gospel, and they condone all kinds of lifestyles. Well, homosexuality comes to mind. That's okay. In fact, you can be a priest in our church and 
be a homosexual. Well, maybe you shouldn't be practicing. Maybe you can. Um, they teach all kinds of things. Tolerance is chic. Tolerance is cool. That's how, oh, tolerance equals love. And the truth, well, that's just taboo. We can't speak the truth about homosexuality because that might hurt someone's feelings. Maybe there's a family member and we can't say when those subjects come up, we can't speak the truth in love because, well, what if it hurts their feelings or it ruins, they wouldn't want to talk to me again. Well, maybe that's the price that has to be paid. But what about our stance within the gospel-centered churches? What do we preach about marriage and divorce? What I become to term serial marriages after having a discussion with a young man um, who's from North Africa and his family and his father had more than one wife. And I kind of asked, how did that work? And we kind of talked about the issue and they really look at America as, yeah, we, we have more than one wife just like you. And I said, really? He said, yeah, we have ours at the same time. You just have them one after the other, right? What really struck me Jesus' teachings are very strong on divorce. And I think in the Christian church, we take it too lightly. But we all think, who am I to say anything? You get invited to a wedding, do you go? Do you go to a a wedding between a believer and a non-believer? I mean, I think these are the things that we have to wrestle with. The church has to wrestle with. Materialism. Do we really combat this in our lives? I mean, we're so, there's so much stuff. Just go to a store. Just go to a store here and then go to a store in a foreign country. I mean, we just go, wow, look at all that we have. We take it for granted. Are we seduced by that? Are we seduced by having more? I say that and my house, my new house was supposed to close and it's the increase of square footage of my new house, I will admit to you, is about as much square footage as my first house was alone. And I wrestle with, is it just because I have need with 10 children to have a little more room and a few extra bathrooms? Yeah, a few extra bathrooms, that's right, yeah. A couple more bathrooms than we have now. More sinks to brush your teeth in and things like that. Um, I, we want it, but I do struggle with, is this just me wanting it just to have more? Or is it to meet the needs of my family? And is it more important than my love for Christ. Go to your local Christian bookstore. We'll use that term loosely. It's amazing how much isn't Christian. We, I mean, you can turn on the Christian radio, and I will ask you there as well. There are those who deny the Trinity who write both music and books there. You wouldn't know it. I, I own a collection, probably about six or seven CDs of a group that Angela Frazier said to me one time, did you know they don't believe in the Trinity? No, I didn't. And I feel bad that I've used my money uh, and the church's money uh, to purchase those, to support someone who their church does not believe in the Trinity. If you don't believe the Trinity, you're not Christian. There are some books you can buy in there, and they basically just deny God's omniscience. God can't really know the future. Wow. So what kind of God do they believe in? I'm not quite sure, but that's not our God. God is all wise and all knowing. If he doesn't know the future, he can't tell us with surety the end. And the end is wonderful for those who know him. 
Some teach outright materialism through the health and wealth, prosperity gospel. You can have your best life now. Well, my best life is in the one to come. I look at Christians around the world. And for those people in India who just suffered a flood, that is not our best life now. You know, we have ecumenical movements. They just want us to join with the Catholic Church. Just put aside our differences in doctrine. Doctrine divides. No. Doctrine unifies us to who God really is. We have to know Him. We have to know Him rightly. We have to love. Otherwise, we begin to worship a different God. Maybe you just turned a blind eye at your job because you know if you blow the whistle, you may be out like the last guy who did. And you're not willing to pay the price. It'll cost you and it'll cost your family. And you know what's right, but you won't do it. You know, we have all this materialism around us, and yet we have the largest indebtedness of any country, personal debt. Why? Because we want it now to satisfy ourselves. You know, it, it could just be things that I struggle with. My things I have are internal. Where The reason they're internal is because I, I'm a pastor, I'm up front, and I'm in a church, and it would be rather embarrassing to publicly do some things that I, I shouldn't. But I can harbor things in my heart and in my mind. And I do. And I even have guys that I meet with, and I'm reluctant to tell them that even though that's the reason we're getting together because I want them to think good about me (laughs) because I'm their pastor. And if I wasn't, I'd still want the same thing because I want to serve myself and not God. Yet it serves him best if I humble myself and admit these things and hold myself accountable. Do I respect God and treasure him above all things? So that I would have put aside any idol in my life, regardless of the cost to me or my family. What was the consequence? Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, Jezebel that is, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. Oh, those things that... I think I can hide from everyone else. He sees so clearly. And I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Sickness and death for Jezebel. Tribulation and death for her spiritual children. They will not suffer the tribulation for Christ, but by Christ. Jesus will use whatever means he desires to purify his bride. What's our command? The twofold command with a special warning to all the churches repent. Christ had already given Jezebel time to repent, but that time had passed and judgment was sure to come on her. Jesus says, I will throw her on a bed. That's the literal Greek. I will throw her on a bed. We call it a bed of sickness, but to throw someone on a bed, bed of sickness is a Hebrew idiom, meaning 
judgment. So maybe she was really going to get sick, but in some way she was going to be judged and die and would die. I think he also uses this word bed, which is the same word they would use for couch, to draw up that in their minds. Here is the couch on which you ate that meat and on which you fornicated with the temple prostitutes and united yourself through them to this other deity. And he wanted that image in their mind. I'm going to turn this bed of pleasure into a bed of pain, a bed of sickness. He still wants us to fear him so that we will turn. Those who follow this teaching, her spiritual children, will also be thrown into great tribulation and killed. But it is not too late. If those involved will repent, it is not too late for us. What we should do is repent, turn from our sins, turn from our idolatry, our self-servingness. It's a double command. Repent for those who need to repent. And hold fast. The word rendered hold fast here has the idea of grabbing hold and not letting go. I heard somebody give this illustration and, and I've, I've noticed it. If you ever go and, and you kind of find yourself on a certain place or area and, and all of a sudden you don't feel safe. Uh, women who might have been holding a purse kind of in the, the crook of their elbow will, will bring that up here and then they'll put their thumb through, you know. What's the point? They don't feel safe. They don't feel like their belongings are safe. They're going to clutch onto that, cling onto it. Grab, hold, and do not let go. I think it's really interesting. He tells this to people in a church because not only is society against them, but the church is against them because they're not stopping the teaching. And there was internal pressure to conform. For those who have not done this, who are suffering because of it, they're being told, well, if you'll just give in a little bit, just, just do what they want, just go. Well, don't do any of that other stuff, but, but just to go and attend. Then you can keep your job and you can feed your children. Maybe it's putting an extra burden on those who are doing that, who are trying to support those who won't do it. I don't know, but there is internal and external pressure. And he's saying, hold fast. He's telling them to hold fast, to endure the very thing they were already commended for. He just wants them to continue, continue to endure. He doesn't say run away and flee. Besides, where would they go? One of those nice Christian enclaves here in the States, Colorado Springs. You know, we're, we're in the culture. We just cannot be consumed by it. He also gives a very important warning to the church. This phrase finds itself in the very middle of this, of this letter. And it's in the very middle of all the letters. It's in, and it's the only time except for he who has ears, a general call to all people of all times to listen and to examine themselves. Here's a special charge to all the churches. And I believe he gives this and that all the churches would know. Um, this sin is so attractive for all people at all times that he wants to give this special charge. And what does he say? He says, I am he that all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. Don't fool yourselves. I know exactly what's going on. I know exactly what's going on at River Lakes. I know exactly what's going on at Sovereign Grace. I know exactly what's going on in your heart. 
those fiery eyes, they see it all and they are purifying and his feet are coming in judgment. I will give to each of you as your works deserve. Now he's, it's very fair. He is going to crush those who rebel, but he will also reward those who endure. I believe because of the structure of these letters, we need to pay careful attention. Do not pass this over, both as a church and personally. We may deceive ourselves, but we cannot deceive him. So be watchful of our doctrine and of falling prey to the culture around us. Just like Israel, the church is susceptible because we're in the world. Our problems are going to be different than those of the Christian church in India. But they're going to struggle with, with their world and we will struggle with ours. Do not give in. That's the temptation of the rest of the book. Jezebel is equated with Babylon and Babylon is the world system and it's the very thing that we should avoid becoming like. What's the commitment? What's the promise? The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. He gave us two things to do, but he also gives us a twofold promise. First, we're going to reign and rule with Christ. This image is brought straight over from Psalm 2. Christ had promised, uh, the Father, pardon me, had promised Christ to rule over the nations and of all the earth. These nations that rage against God in verse 1 of Psalm 2 are going to be crushed at the end if they do not repent. Kiss the Son. Submit yourself. Bow down low and kiss the Son, lest He be angry. So for those who persevere, His promise is, you will reign with Me. You can look back in Romans and just see how much we are united with Christ and we share everything that He is and that he has procured. We share in that. We are sons. We are co-heirs. And I could go on and on. Recalling the guilds and the metal workers of the metal workers, we see the iron and the pottery workers. And they know full well iron being the strongest and pots being like nothing. That we will reign over them if we endure. Secondly, and I believe most importantly, not only we have this fearful judgment, but that we can be a part of, be on the right side of, but that we are promised the morning star. In Numbers 24, we're told that a a star will rise out of Jacob. And at the end of Revelation, Jesus says, I am the bright and morning star. It is Christ himself and his rule. But I want to emphasize that it's simply Christ, that he is the prize. He is the end. He is eternal life. He is our reward. John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is the reward. What better reward could there be? be? And for those who are experiencing persecution in a most difficult place to stay true to the teachings they have received, to fend off those both in your own church and those from without, 
than to be promised Christ himself. The church of permissive compromise was called to uncompromising endurance. Jesus is the omniscient, purifying judge who will conquer all his enemies, but will forgive those who repent from idolatry. And those who persevere to the end will reign with him. Do I so adore Christ? Do I so adore Christ that above all else, that I will seek his forgiveness and turn away from any idolatry in my life and in my heart? Do I love him? Do I fear him enough? Or will I just continue like mere man? He is the prize of eternal life. He is the good news. Jesus is the gospel. He is the end. He is the ultimate, the pinnacle. Note that Christ's servants are the one who had fallen into the sin. They weren't unbelievers. They were believers. Yet if they repent, Christ would turn aside his wrath. Have you placed your faith for eternal life in the person and work of Christ? Examine yourselves. Do you know him? Do you trust him? Or do you trust in yourself? You are called to repent, to turn away from your life of sin, to turn to Christ, who is fully God and yet took on a human nature, enduring a death, taking upon him our sin and God's wrath poured out upon him for that sin. You must trust him and his work for your salvation. You can't work your way to him. You cannot beat yourself up over your sin and feel badly. Hoping that does some sort of penance for you. You have to trust in him completely and depend upon him each day. For those of us who call ourselves Christians, we believe that that we have trusted him, that we do trust him. Have we fallen into idolatry? Because the gospel is still for us every day. He was speaking to the church. They'd fallen into this. All they had to do was repent. Maybe we've turned a blind eye at work. We've compromised for the sake of material gain in our lives. Maybe you've loved comfort or power or praise more than you've loved him. Maybe you trust your wealth, the love and praise of men, or you serve something else. Christ says, turn to him, repent, because I have already paid for that sin. That is good news. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you desire our wholehearted devotion. As we note the communion elements placed before us. We notice that the grace and forgiveness is extended to us through those elements to remind us of your life and your sacrifice and that you have atoned, you have paid for the sins. Forgive us, strengthen us in these times May we make you our only desire. May we seek you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And thank you for making a way to you despite our sin. And thank you for this wake-up call to Thyatira and for the church today and for our lives this morning in Christ's name. Amen.